Welcome to the One Signal Podcast, where we aim to help companies build meaningful and lasting relationships with their customers. This is your host, Josh Wetzel. We've got a great guest today for you, digital media expert, Brad Schlachter. So he's had a growth at Simpler Media, and he's had an awesome journey overseeing and, and or being focused on user retention acquisition for streaming services such as Hallmark, traditional media such as Motor Trend, and much in between. He's joining us today to discuss best practice around user retention, loyalty, and growth. So welcome to the One Signal Podcast, Brad. Thank you for joining. Great. Thanks for having me. So how'd you get started in the business? How'd you end up in media and content businesses? Yeah, I mean, it's it really was kind of luck in the sense that my first job after college was with an advertising agency in New York called Gray Advertising, which is a pretty big agency. Yep. And by sort of, I guess, luck of the draw, I was assigned to the Warner Brothers theatrical um, business as well as the ABC television business. And so that was really my first exposure to, you know, media and content and entertainment. From there, I, I always had an interest in, in media and content and it led to me uh, getting into the video game business for a long time and then into the digital media business. And, and, and as you said, the video streaming space. And really for the most part, I've, I've worked with brands and, and platforms that have content in one form or another. Yep. At one point you were in the Bay Area, but you moved down to LA. Is that got you closer to the video and kind of traditional media than in the digital media space or what drove that? Yeah. I mean, I'm originally from New York, but the entertainment industry really did end up driving me out to the West Coast. And I have lived in the Bay Area and you know now I've been in LA and yeah, I think there's certainly plenty of opportunity in the Bay Area as well, but the type of content and businesses that I've been drawn to, there was definitely more opportunity for me down here. And so, you know, that's how I ended up in LA and, you know, been here now for quite a while. That's awesome. Yeah, you did time in Major League Baseball, Disney, you had a nice like platform video game at Sega and Konami, and then obviously went down to LA and you get a nice wide breadth of content businesses in general. Yeah. And I've, I've been in the business long enough that, you know, when I first started, it was a, a brick and mortar business. It was people going to movie theaters. It was people buying video game discs at retail. And it was about working with the big box retailers, et cetera, and getting shelf space. And, and obviously, you know, the content business has transitioned and is now, you know, largely a, a download business, a streaming business you know, a website business. And so I really was forced to evolve with the times to stay relevant. Yeah. That's a good segue to the next question that I want to get to, which is you've seen the gamut, like TV, traditional content, video games. What is the biggest challenges that content businesses face today? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, of course it varies depending on the business and the vertical you're in, but one sort of common thing that I've seen that, that impacts really almost everyone that I've worked with, whether it's as a consultant or as an employee, is, as I said earlier, when, when content was largely a brick-and-mortar retail business, the channels for distribution were pretty clear. You knew that you needed to have relationships with, you know, whether it was a Walmart or a Best Buy or a Target, and there was a well-established process for you know, selling into the channel, getting shelf space, buying circular ads, making sure you're you're getting merchandising in the store to get discovered. And when the business shifted to digital, 
it's a lot harder to get discovered. There's so many more channels. There's you know, countless number of websites and mobile apps, and there's hundreds of streaming services. And so you could have the greatest content or service out there, but if the consumer is not aware of it or isn't able to easily discover it, then you don't stand a chance. So the first thing I think, especially for newer companies and even you know, companies that have been around for a while, this discoverability challenge, I think, is something that everyone has to deal with. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always been optimistic about this. You know, I was kind of fortunate that I I missed the traditional content, but I was always optimistic that the web offered this unlimited distribution, but you still just have new gatekeepers, right? And it shifted and it's yeah. kind of always shifting and the forms are different. So it, it, it what I love about it is it creates new challenges, but opportunities every day, but it is, I do see it particularly on the media side, it's become a lot harder. Um, yeah, and the gatekeepers have just changed, right? You know, it used to be the top retailers, and now if you're a video streaming service, it's platforms like Roku or or Amazon Fire TV or Apple TV, and, yep. or the aggregators. So the gatekeepers have changed, and people like to think that if you have great content, you know, the cream always rises to the top. But again, you, people if people can't discover your content or see how great it is for themselves, then that, that's a big challenge. Yep. So talking about audience engagement specifically, the question would sort of naturally becomes when you think about customer retention, kind of how do you get engagement of the people that are coming to your your service or your application? How do you get them to become loyal kind of repeat users? What are the most strategic levers of that strategy in your experience? Yeah, it really is about the content and Having a marketing background, I always try to frame this as what is it that's different and special about your business or your service or your content? Is there a product market fit? There's a lot of games or or movies or or other content companies that have content that's very similar to what else other people have a lot of options and choices. And so you need to give them, first of all, a reason to be interested in your content. It needs to be, it needs to resonate with them. It needs to have some type of a unique value proposition. And, and obviously, when you're in, in the media space, it's always easier if you have content that's very specialized. That's why services like Hallmark and Motor Trend, there's an audience for that because it's niche content. It has a very specific and narrow audience in mind. And they're really, those narrow or niche audiences are hungry for more content and specialized content. It's really hard to go against a Netflix or a Hulu and try to be something to everyone. So knowing your audience and having content that resonates with your audience, and and that's a lot a lot easier said than done. Yeah, Hallmark seems like it's got a massive audience in the sense, at least in my household and all the women I know in my life. You got the all Hallmark Christmas movies coming out. Yeah. So yeah, Hallmark for them, Christmas was 365 days a year because <laughs> there, there's demand for it. But you know, it's a good example where. We were working with Roku and we needed Roku to help us promote the service because Roku is kind of one of those gatekeepers. And it just so happened that there was a woman we were working with who was a big Hallmark fan, which which was lucky for us. And But more importantly, Roku recognized that that audience was being underserved on their platform. There weren't a lot of other sort of family-friendly, woman-oriented services so that's why they they got behind us and ended up you know supporting Hallmark. Whereas if we were just another one of those sci-fi channels or action movie networks, and there was you know if there were if we were a dime a dozen, it would have been a lot harder to partner with them. Yeah, 
That makes sense. What are the kind of best practices you found specifically thinking about engagement retention components? So you've captured someone who's now using, say, Hallmark or Motor Trend. What are the things that you would go to to try to drive repeat usage? Or you think about even in a, a traditional content, written content form, you know, with simpler? Yeah. At the highest level or the simplest level, it's about listening to the customer. And, you know, obviously a lot of companies preach that they're very customer centric, but it's one thing to say that and it's another thing to actually do it. But I could tell you that when I was at Hallmark or Motor Trend and other companies, we spent a lot of time analyzing the data. What were people watching? What were they, what type of content led to them signing up? Why were they canceling if they were canceling? And At Motor Trend, it it just so happened that there was a very specific show called Roadkill that was very popular. And so, you know, Motor Trend ended up investing in expanding that. And so they had some spinoffs from the Roadkill uh, franchise. And so it's really about giving the customer more of what they want and understanding with the data and and with research and surveys, you know, really finding out what they're looking for, what they like, what they don't like, what they want to see more of, you know, and like I said, when it's the extent possible, fulfilling their desire in, in those areas. Yep, it's good. Yeah, and how do you measure that? Like, how are you diving in? I guess in Hallmark's case, you can look at viewership of specific episodes. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, obviously the measurement for success, you know, does vary depending on what your business model is. With a subscription-based service like Hallmark or Motor Trend, it was all about how many paying subscribers you had and growing and retaining, right? Uh, reducing churn. So the longer you hung on to a paying subscriber, the more higher the lifetime value. So yes, that was mostly looking at what were they viewing, asking them what they what, what type of content they wanted to see, what did they want to see more, what what did they want to see less of. With Hallmark, we learned that we had obviously had a lot of moms who were our target market, and they were looking for more kids programming because it was a way for them to place their child in front of the TV, at least for a, a period of time and feel like they could trust the content and, and it was safe and it was a way for them to free up some of their time. And so, and as I said, with Motor Trend, it was more about the roadkill show and getting more content, you know, related yeah. to that show. Yeah. That was a, a flagship program. That yeah. And, and then clearly, you know, if your ad model is not a subscription model, you know, simpler is ad, is ad based. So, you know, we're looking at articles. It's really about engagement and, reducing the bounce rate and how many page views, what articles are leading to more page views. And so we're serving more ad impressions. And so, you know, our, so the business model is a little bit different, but you know, a lot of media companies are pivoting to like a direct-to-consumer model, getting that direct relationship with the customer and having hybrid models where it's both subscription-based and ad-based. You know, you're seeing a lot more of that happen as these companies transition. Makes sense. So transitioning here a little bit into the messaging component, How do you think about the mix for you in terms of driving engagement between email and push and SMS and potentially other channels? I know you've probably done some direct mail or or things of that nature in your career. Like, how do you think about those channels? How do you prioritize them? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And a lot of this has to do with understanding really the customer journey. It's all about, you know, testing and optimizing and relentlessly testing and optimizing. But we're always looking at what are the touch points? How are you reaching the customer? What are all the different touch points, whether it's email or push or or direct mail piece? And understanding the relative value of each one. And you know, there are 
we use software that is basically, you know, multi-channel attribution. So it gives you, helps you understand what the, what each touch point is worth from a fractional perspective and not just under, you know, some people rely or a lot of companies rely on just last click for attribution. So you may see an ad, you may see an email, you may see an ad on social, and then you may see a banner ad. And if you click on the banner ad, the banner ad gets all the success or all the, 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 the credit for the success. But you have to understand that that person may have been exposed to to other ads previously. And there, there's there should be fractional credit because, you know, reach is about frequency as well. And effective reach really is about reaching someone two or three times before you really can make an impact. So, I mean, to answer your question, I, I still find that email is, it's been around a long time, but it's still highly effective. And I think having a customer's email address is, is really really an important and powerful tool for that for that direct-to-consumer relationship. Certainly, if you're a mobile-based company or really heavily focused on, on mobile apps, push notifications are also a great tool, as well as SMS. But I like to look at it as that you want to reach your customer multiple times and multiple, have, again, multiple touch points. So it really should be thinking about how they all work together. And collectively, they're all more powerful than working with one in a vacuum. Yep. So if I'm the publisher of, I won't even make up the name, but you're trying to sell me on why we should be adopting some of these channels. And so let's just assume we do use none of those channels. What would be your perspective on the revenue lift you would see by implementing email and or push or some of these others? But- yeah, I think, again, I think it's always going to vary, but for the brands that I've worked on, email, I still think is is king, but maybe it's also because a lot of times more companies that are that have been around for a while, they've had many years, certainly Hallmark as an example, they had a very long time to build up their email database where, you know, their their push notification or the people who, you know, who downloaded their mobile app and, and the, the audience that they could send push notifications to it was much smaller than, than their email list. So, but on a relative basis, the push notifications probably performed as well, or if not better, but just being a legacy company, you know, email certainly was still king there. And again, I, so I, you know, for me, I've had the most success with email, but I've seen the value of all three. And, and like I said, you know, really an effective, the most effective way is to view all these as just multiple touch points and have them all work together because it may be not the first time or maybe the first time or second time you hit someone with a message, it doesn't get them. But by the third time, it sinks in and, and that's when they take action. So it really, they should all complement each other. That's well said. And the interesting thing we're seeing in the market is this love affair with this notion of the user journey. I think we've all talked about it, particularly in digital, because there's this belief that we can accomplish multiple touch points, but know what preferences those users have, personalize the message. And I think 2022, where it sort of becomes this predominant topic at all these conferences. And we're all going to be going back to the conferences because we can't wait to go see people again. Yeah, and it's certainly something that I've been focused on for a number of years, and it's sort of the holy grail of marketing to to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time, and have everything be tailored and customized. And and look, I use a lot of tools like Marketo and other things to deliver personalized content, but you know, it's I, I still think we're a ways off from really realizing the full potential of personalization. And it's again, it's been easier to talk about in practice. Executing it is not easy and the tools are getting better and better, but 
Yeah, that's why understanding the customer journey and delivering the right kind of message for the right type of platform they're on and making sure it's tailored to the customer is really key. And because when people are on Facebook, they might be in a different frame of mind than when they're getting an email or, yep. or they're, they're on a website. So it, you really have to understand the, the different nuance there. Yep. And you can use them for completely different purposes. Email can yeah. be it's very asynchronous. You can go long form. You can really yeah. get involved. Notifications, particularly for content, is really an extension of the product or service. They're real-time. They're part of the experience. So, okay, last question, and I'll let you go. I don't want to take up your whole day here, but <laughs> what's one idea or impactful thing you've done you can share with the listeners that you've seen in your career? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that sometimes gets overlooked, you know, businesses I've worked for, you know, there's always a focus on, you know, getting more users into the funnel and and paid media is typically something that, you know, is top of mind. And certainly that's a very important part of the mix. But you want to make sure that you're fully leveraging the fans that you already have and you're giving them the tools to evangelize your product or service on your behalf. So really what I've seen be very successful are referral programs. It requires obviously, you know, some thought and, and you need to also promote them because the referral program is only successful if people are aware of it and, and, and discover it. But also you're providing typically, you know, a referral program, you're providing an incentive for both the referrer and the referee. And so if you can find a powerful incentive that aligns, hopefully ideally aligns with your business goals, and it's not just free money or free swag, but something that really you know, plays to what's different and special about your product or service. I think that then becomes really powerful to empower your most loyal users to evangelize your product and your service. And I've seen referral programs that really have been so successful that we had to scale them back. We had to cap them because we were driving so many registrations or subscription signups that we were the company was being overwhelmed and they didn't have the customer support infrastructure to handle the rapid scaling. So you know, and look, I, I refer a friend and referral programs, ambassador programs, they're, they're nothing new, but really it can be a very powerful tool if it's the right incentive with the right product. Yeah. There's a great story about that around PayPal where they were giving away, I believe it was $20, maybe it was 10 for each customer you referred and they got a bonus as well. Back in the day, I ran a basketball NCAA March Madness tournament where I think I got made a, a couple grand. Uh, but the story is that it almost bankrupted the company. It works so well because yeah. it was back in those days where like you couldn't just go raise another $100 million because you've got all these users versus yeah. today where you could. So, And I think those are the kind of referral programs you have to be wary of because, you know, money is, it's obviously a powerful incentive, but that's not really aligning with what necessarily it's different and better about PayPal. So, you know, I think an example of a really, I think, good referral program, I think it was perhaps Dropbox a few years ago, you know, you got more storage if you, for free, if you were able to refer more friends, you know, you, the amount of free storage you got was increased. And at least there, the benefit was directly tied to the value of the product and the service. And I think when you do referral programs, especially for startups, if they're too focused on money or swag, you could potentially harm the brand as well. I think it's, it's something you have to be, be careful about. It's funny. I just realized, and you bring up the Dropbox one, that I am highly motivated by these things because I have, I think, nine gigs <laughs> of storage. And I think it was 250 per person you referred or some 250 megabytes. Yeah. 
So I'm realizing that I am a sucker for that. So (laughs) anyhow, thank you, Brad, for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you all listeners. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe to the One Signal Podcast, your preferred podcast directory, Spotify, Apple, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, and many others. And remember, One Signal is democratizing customer engagement. It's the number one customer engagement platform in the world used by 1.2 million companies delivering over 10 billion messages a day. You can try it for free and use it for free in perpetuity on the mobile side. In the meantime, have a great day. Thank you all.